Well, the gospel lesson today is from the eighth chapter of Mark. This is one of those stories that appears in three of the four gospels, although it it shows up in slightly different forms. But let's listen now to God's word to all of us today from the gospel of Mark. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we do... Thank you for your word and pray that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to your word and to your world this day so that we can find ourselves who we are as we ponder and answer the question for ourselves who you are. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a study came out with a bit of fanfare earlier this year in March The study was done by the Episcopal Church, USA, and also the public opinion research firm, Ipsos, and it was called Jesus in America. There are lots of questions in there, there interesting questions, some disturbing about faith and church and perceptions of Jesus that people have, also perceptions of Christians. And one question in particular caught my eye, which is probably not surprising since I'm a pastor. The question is, how involved are you in a church or other religious community? Now remember, this is a nationwide survey, not just of the East Bay. And can you imagine, can you guess what the answer is? What percentage of people are actively involved in church? What do you think? What? 50, 20, you're not far off. 70% responded they are not involved in church or any other religious community. That includes 60% of self-identified Christians, too. Anyway, the results that got the most attention in the press and the news media, actually quite a bit at the time, were about how Christians are seen as living out our faith. And 56% of all those surveyed, including Christians, 
said that Christians represent little to none of the values and teachings of Jesus in their own lives. And among non-Christians, the most common words used to describe Christians, each one had more than 50% response. The most common words used to describe Christians by non-Christians were self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental, hypocritical. Yeah, not very good news, right? And I wonder how the Supreme Court decision of the other day is going to have an impact on that. Now, there were also some non-controversial and very interesting results that I want to call our attention to right now. For example, Christians alone were asked, what word or phrase would you use to describe Jesus? And the most frequent answer was, sound like some TV game show, but anyway, the most frequent answer was Savior, followed by Son of God, Messiah, Lord, and Healer. They're all good. And that brings us to the gospel lesson, where Jesus is basically asking his disciples to give him some public opinion research results, right? They've been traveling around Galilee with Jesus to the various villages and rural areas. They'd been collecting data from how people understand who Jesus is. They heard buzz. They had heard the question come up over and over again, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And so Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And one data point seems to stick out more than the others. The crowd sees Jesus as like Elijah or like one of the other prophets in the Hebrew Bible. He's delivering a divinely inspired message of radical repentance. Or he's like his contemporary John the Baptist, whose prophetic role is basically to be a forerunner or somebody who brings people's attention to the Messiah who is going to come in the future, the one that God has anointed to bring salvation to the people of Israel. That's what other people have to say about who Jesus is. He's a prophet. And then Jesus asks his own disciples a follow-up question. This one's a bit harder to answer because it's not about public opinion research. It's getting to the core of their own commitments, their own vision. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers right away, as Peter tends to do, you are the Messiah. And at first glance, that would seem to be the right answer. After all, in the Gospel of Mark, the very first verse says this is the good news about Jesus Christ. And Christ, or Christos, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. So Peter seems to see Jesus for who he really is. But we find out soon enough that he doesn't have the whole picture. In fact, it is no coincidence at all that the story we hear right before this in the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus healing a blind man. Blind man. He touches him. The blind man gets his sight back. But at first, it's really fuzzy, blurry. In fact, 
This is a really memorable image. The guy says, all he can see are moving blobs, uh, people that look like walking trees. And then Jesus puts his hands on his eyes a second time, a second time, and his full vision is restored. So like the blind man, Peter can only see part of who Jesus is, and that part is distorted. So Jesus proceeds to correct his vision. He tells him and the other disciples flat out that he's going to endure all sorts of suffering. He's going to die, and on the third day, he's going to be raised again from the dead to bring salvation to the earth. And to you and me as Christians living 2,000 years later, that sounds perfectly familiar. Sounds right. Yeah, that's exactly what the Christ does, as far as we know. But remember, Jesus is asking this question of his disciples before any of that happens. And to Peter and the other disciples, you see, the very idea that a Messiah would suffer and die goes against everything they ever believed or been taught as Jews. I mean, nowhere in the Hebrew Bible does it say that the Messiah is going to die. It doesn't say he's going to rise from the dead either. We Christians, we can interpret certain passages of scripture as as pointing to those things, but but it's not something that the vast majority of Jews who've ever lived would ever accept, that the Messiah is going to suffer and die and rise again. I mean, far from from enduring suffering, the Messiah is supposed to inflict suffering on the enemies of the Jewish people. That's their understanding. He's going to lead them to absolute victory in a war, establishing an everlasting kingdom of peace and justice and mercy with his dominion stretching from Mount Zion in Jerusalem to the rest of the world. And his followers, this is important, the followers of the Messiah are supposed to enjoy and share in that same power and glory ruling from the temple in Jerusalem. That's how Peter sees the job description of a Messiah. So the instant Jesus insists that he must undergo suffering, rejection, and death, Peter backs away. He rebukes Jesus. We don't know what he says. He tells him off, though. And Jesus responds with these harsh and absolutely unforgettable words. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that Peter himself is the devil. It's just that his preconceived ideas of what a Messiah is supposed to be like are diabolical. They remind Jesus of the time, if you remember earlier on in the Gospels, when he goes out in the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil. And one of the temptations is that if Jesus will just bow down before the devil, the devil will give him all power and glory and honor, ruling from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But as you know, Jesus refuses that deal since he knows that there's no easy way out 
when it comes to saving the world. Not for him, and not for his disciples either, or anyone who follows him. For if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's unveiling a brand new and totally unexpected vision of who the Messiah is supposed to be. Because Peter, you know, couldn't help, just like any human being, he couldn't help but see the world and his place in it through a particular set of lenses, right? Lenses that had been given to him through his own understanding of scripture or tradition or family or whatever. He saw the world in a particular way with particular set of lenses. You might say, that like any other Jew living at that time, he wore a pair of glasses. They all wore a pair of glasses and they all had the same prescription. But Jesus tells them to take those off. And what happens when you take off a pair of prescription glasses? You can't see. It's blurry. But then you put on a new pair of glasses, maybe with a new prescription, and gradually things start to clear up. That's what Jesus is doing for Peter and the other disciples. And it's shocking at first. I mean, I don't know about you, but when it comes to choosing a religion or somebody I want to follow, I mean, who wants to sign up for suffering? The Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood described this complicating aspect of following Jesus as the Messiah like this. In many areas, the gospel, instead of taking away people's burdens, actually adds to them. And he pointed to the story of John Woolman, who was a very, very successful Quaker businessman in the 18th century, living a very comfortable life until one night, He was praying, and he was convicted by the Spirit of God that the whole institution of owning other human beings as slaves was against God's will. He was convicted of that. And so what he did is he sold his business. He used all his money in an effort to free as many slaves as he could. He even started wearing undyed suits to avoid relying on dye that had been produced by slave labor. And this leads Elton Trueblood to write this. Occasionally, we talk of our Christianity as something that solves problems. And there is a sense in which it does. But long before it does so, it increases both the number and the intensity of our problems. Sit with that for a second. That's why following Jesus is hard. It can be really hard because it requires all of us to put on a fresh pair of prescription glasses 
maybe many times in our lives. And that new prescription can run counter to how you and I might prefer to see the world and our own place in the world. Because God doesn't care about you or me being absolutely comfortable with our faith. In giving us the spirit of Jesus Christ, God places a holiness within us, a sacred presence that is self-giving, that brings joy and peace and meaning that are far deeper than any mere carefree or prosperous existence. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms over and over and over in the Gospels that if you want to live an abundant life, you're going to have to think more about loving than being loved. You're going to have to think more about understanding than being understood. More about forgiving than being forgiven. More about giving than getting what you want. Or as C.S. Lewis writes in the last paragraph of his book, Mere Christianity, the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose life and it will be saved. Submit to death, the death of ambitions and secret wishes. Keep nothing back. And then the last couple of sentences of the book, he writes, nothing in us that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Now there is obviously way more I can say about this topic, way more than any one sermon about suffering or or what it means to lose your life or give your life in following Jesus. But right now, I just want to make one important point. I want to be clear about something that it doesn't mean to carry a cross. Because people have been told through the centuries that carrying a cross means patiently enduring or putting up with almost any kind of suffering. You've probably heard that before. Oh, I'm just carrying my cross whether it's a debilitating disease or an abusive relationship or an oppressive uh, oppression from some figure of authority. Now, certainly God is with us and in us in any suffering that we're going through, and God can use it for redemptive purposes, for healing, for hope, all sorts of things. Suffering in and of, of itself is not irredeemable. But giving your life to Christ is never something that is simply imposed on you. At least in part, it's voluntary. It's the way of the cross, where we take on somebody else's burden, or we abandon our attachment to ego, or we love our neighbor as ourself in the model of Jesus, or as he says, for the sake of Christ or the sake of the gospel. It's not taking the easy way out in meeting the needs of a hurting and often hostile world. And in that sense, it is much harder and much clearer 
than just saying Jesus is my Lord and Savior or Jesus is the Messiah. Because if you really mean what you say, it's going to show up in your life. It's going to be obvious. A few years ago, actually about, gosh, 25 years ago, I was living in Quito, Ecuador, as some of you know, and my wife and I were living there, and one day, my wife, Margaret, was hundreds of miles away on the coast in Guayaquil, and I was in Quito, and I was by myself, and I got really, really sick. Those of you who have spent any time in third world countries or gosh, even our own country recently, and you've gotten really, really sick. You know what I'm talking about. You, you kind of need somebody to be there to help you out. But I had sort of just arrived in country, and my Spanish was really not very good. And the only people I knew who could speak any English and maybe help me out were uh, some folks who worshipped at a little trilingual Lutheran church in Quito, little tiny church They spoke uh, Spanish and English, and since it's Lutheran, they spoke German, too. And so I called the office. I'm just really sick. I didn't know what to do. Called the office, left a message. I had no idea if anybody was going to get that or what would happen. But an hour later, there was a knock at my door, and with a spinning head, I got up, went to the door, opened it up, and there was the pastor of the church with a bag of groceries in his hands. He came in, sat down with me, he asked me what I needed, he prayed with me, and then he left. And I got to say, the whole interaction probably didn't take 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) But to this day, to this day, in my memory, that act of responsiveness and kindness somehow saved my life. Now, I don't know if it did literally. I got better in a couple of days anyway. But at that moment, I saw what it means to not just say the right words as a Christian, but to be Christ for somebody else. You know, for thousands of years, all over this world, billions of people have asked the same question in, well, different languages about Jesus. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? And part of the answer certainly could be to say that he is the Messiah, or the Son of God, or your Lord and Savior, or Son of Man, or any number of other things. That could be part of the answer. But if that's where it stops with just labels, it's a distorted vision. Because Christ isn't just a person who walked around a long time ago on this earth doing a lot of really cool stuff. He isn't just a peaceful presence that you have in your heart or a king who's waiting for you to arrive up in heaven. He's alive right now in you. And in me, when we give our love, our energy, even our lives for other people, Christ is in us. Or when somebody else does that for you, 
Christ Jesus is present. Sometimes in fairly simple acts like bringing over a bag of groceries when you're sick and sometimes in acts that take great personal sacrifice. So, in answering Jesus' questions, who do you say that I am? Don't get caught up in getting the words just right. For as the writer Richard Rohr puts it, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. So let Jesus come alive in you. In love and mercy and grace and healing. And let your own life answer the question of who he is. In Jesus' name. Amen.